I'm Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. Ruth Sapsed is the director of an arts and wellbeing charity called Cambridge Curiosity and Imagination. She set it up 15 years ago with the artist Idit Nathan. It grew out of a group who started meeting because they were concerned about the creative opportunities that education was offering their kids, the group creating a coming together of artists, educators, academics and parents. Their conversations led them to start cultivating a relationship with the Faculty of Education at the University of Cambridge. Over time, Cambridge Curiosity and Imagination was formed and 10 years ago it became a charity. I first heard about them from Robert McFarlane when I interviewed him recently and on further investigation fell in love with their approach and their work. It was therefore a great privilege to be able to talk to Ruth and I started by asking her to give us a sense of what CCI does. We try and find ways to enable creativity in, in, in any in people of any age. So um, that means that we go in and facilitate experiences that are around giving them a creative voice, giving them creative agency to explore whatever ideas that seem pertinent and prescient to them. I have to say that that sounds you know, by and large, the work is we have to come alongside partners who can fund it. So the work is it's not as open ended as all that. You know, in a sense, if I give you some examples of projects that we've done. Um, so, for example, we work with the friends group of a local library who wanted to think about their garden as a friendly space. So we came in and we worked alongside children from the local school. We worked alongside families. We were offered opportunities to people visiting the library to explore what does that idea mean? What might a space look like if it's friendly? How do you experience this space for yourself at the moment? How might we change this space to bring in ideas of friendliness? So in a way, in that question that we came alongside was influenced by the people who sponsored the project. We're doing a, a lot of work at the moment with... Um, the University of Cambridge, because they are building a huge, the developing of the northern edge of Cambridge into a new suburb. It's called Eddington. And they commissioned us to create an education program to run alongside the public art that was being commissioned. A big, it's a big investment, very high spec kind of areas, lots of very, um, prestigious architects working on it. But they, they are, they, they came to the idea that actually the public art could have an education program alongside it. So we have been offering schools and the kind of wider community that sits around the schools invitations to think about what does it mean approaching this idea of community as an artist. So how might you think about your community? What would you like? What makes a happy community? What makes a community that can connect itself? Well, who lived here before? You know, questions like that we've been doing. So, yes, sorry, I was trying to think how to explain when you say, what do we do? It's 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 very much influenced by the partners who are kind of inviting us in to do the work as well. You talked about the about how one of the drivers or that got you started was was a, a sense of a decline in the op, in the creative opportunities for young people. I wonder how you would evaluate the the state of health or the degree of um, uh, kind of attention that we give to imagination in the UK in 2018. Why? What? What? What's how would you how would you assess and evaluate that? 
Oh, thanks for that. Well, that's a nice question. Um, I mean, what gets counted get measured? What's what's that expression? You know, there's something like that. And I think the problem is it's not because we can't because we and I don't like, you know, I'm not saying that I want to pursue this goal of being able to measure it. But I think if it was easier, if it, if we had a way of valuing it, we'd probably we'd probably bring it back in to be more clearly valued than we do. It's very, very difficult. And, you know, the whole drift of what you see going on in education is to value and measure what's easily measurable. And hence, we've got this mad assessment and accountability system that has squeezed out any space for imagination. But I don't think it's dead. I don't think it's gone. And I think what's incredible is that when you come back in and push a chink in, it's all there flourishing away in people's heads. You know, we are we are storytellers and we are imaginators and we are, you know, these amazing. I think it's all going on, but we're not listening to it. So I think once we start listening again, we find it in absolute brilliant quantities, but we're just not listening to it. So I think the state of imagination is fine if we're listening. So it's kind of it's neglected. Yeah, it's it's really neglected. And it and it also has got to a place where I what I see when I go into schools and work alongside teachers it's uncomfortable because it's kind of they it's it, it's a bit messy it doesn't fit into the systems they don't know how to kind of work with it it takes people off course it's you know it's not as kind of you know it, it pulls you in lots of different directions and if you're going to honor the individuality of it it actually just slows things down in their system of we got to get through this 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 and this and i'm I'm aware of that as a parent, you know, you're on track and you want to get somewhere and you're, you know, you don't want to stop or look or listen or kind of, you know, slow down or go off on a tangent necessarily. And the tangential side of it is difficult to accommodate, but it, so it, it's about kind of pushing the chinks back in to find spaces for it. I, I go along to, um, I'm part of the all parliamentary party group on art design and, in education and at um at the the meeting this last week there was some absolutely amazing year they were year eight so they were 13 12 13 year olds who were being um offered a kind of brilliant uh, out of school i mean that's what's sad is that you know it was it wasn't within school it was out of school um they were calling themselves creative producers and they were creating their own animations that were about talking to each other about how they can still be creative. And one of the questions was, what sort of um, creative opportunities do you get in primary school? And one of the girls said, oh, well, in year five, we had one music lesson and one art lesson in the whole year. And you just think it's jaw, it's jaw, it's jaw droppingly shocking. But she was exploding with ideas and, you know, agency. So I think it's all there if you if if you facilitate it in the right way. Why does that matter? What what is the risk of of a generation of kids growing up through an education system that doesn't offer them that kind of space? What do we what what are we what problems are we creating by by nudging that out of the picture? When you think if you if nobody's interested in your ideas, you're just a you're just a widget in a system being poured stuff in that somebody else has decided is important for you, aren't you? You're just being told to swallow stuff that you don't know whether you care about it or not and I think about masses of my education and I was a very good swallower <laughs> you know I was a very good swallower and regurgitator but I can't remember it all but the stuff that stuck is the stuff that I was given a bit of space to have my own sort of thoughts and ideas on so I think if we 
I mean, it's tricky. It's tricky. And if you go down the kind of um, more political route, you might think, well, we don't want people to be independent thinkers. We want them to be servers of our put where we put them and get on with doing what we want them to do. But look, you know, your question at the beginning about where's the failure of imagination around climate change is, well, that's where we're going to end up if we don't start inviting people to have some sense of idea. And and I, you know, I, I suppose when I try and give a sense of why I think the work is important, I've been referencing some of the stuff that's coming out of the Cultural Learning Alliance um, work that they've been doing about trying to show the long term impact on having access to a broad and rich kind of cultural life. And that's evidence around young people who've had those opportunities go on to vote. They go on to volunteer. They go on to be the kind of citizens we need we need around us. And actually, the implications are, therefore, if they don't have that, then, you know, that, we get the kind of passive, lethargic, switched off, angry, you know, citizens that we, you know, aren't going to help us get out of this hole, are they? If, if we had an education system in this country uh, <clears throat> that um, from which young people emerged as imaginative as they could possibly be, like if that was the goal of, of, of our education system, what would it look like? What would it? Uh, can you describe what that education would have looked like? What would it have included? I think a lot of well, just much more self-directed learning opportunities, much more opportunities for their for individuals to find what interests them and build and pursue an interest around that, whether it be building a boat or, you know, opening up a rabbit or, you know, there's some fantastic, amazing. Um, so one of one of my colleagues introduced me to the work of Susan Isaacs, who ran a school in Cambridge in the 30s that had, you know, they had a working carpentry um, space. They had a working laboratory space. They had a building space, you know, absolutely kind of hands on experiential sort of project based learning opportunities, which the children could navigate their way through and self-direct. But the sort of sense of discovery and motivation that you see in that is extraordinary. I mean, I think that would be great. It's very I can't imagine how you do it with the numbers that we've got. But I think there are some really interesting models. We've been very influenced as a group. Um, many of the artists I've worked with have been able to go out to Reggio Emilia in northern Italy. I don't know if you know any about what ha work that happens there. So it's a very uh, incredible story in that, you know, um, the families and the uh, the towns, the citizens got together after the war and thought about what sort of education system did they want for their children in response to what they'd seen happen in Italy during the war. And they created a, a, an approach to education which places the arts and that way of exploring your ideas through an aesthetic kind of response with materials and and, you know, at much more. Um, um, experiential learning right in the heart of all the early years centres that are in this area of northern Italy. It's world famous people travel all over to to visit there. So they have a they have an art studio, an atelier in the middle of their early year centres. So the the school functions around an atelier space, like a laboratory space, and that that work is uh, facilitated by what they call an atelierista. So she she or he is a is a kind of creative pedagogue pedagogue who kind of um, 
enables that learning through this kind of hands-on laboratory approach. It's very striking. And the and the work that comes out of Regio is extraordinary. And we were part of one of the very first things that we did as a group here in Cambridge was support bringing an exhibition called The Enemies of Boredom. No, sorry. Our evaluation was called The Enemies of Boredom. Uh, it was called The Hundred Languages of Children. So they talk about children having a hundred languages. They talk about children be expressing their ideas through a hundred different ways. It's a poem that um, illustrates that idea. So this exhibition came to Cambridge and we did an evaluation. So we had we we did a program of work around it and workshops and conference kind of seminar days. And. I think there were 2000 teachers from around the east of England came to that exhibition and we did an ex we did an evaluation. And the big message was um, sort of, well, it was sort of, well, why aren't our children? Why aren't our children creative like this? You know, why, why, why is that? You know, our children don't think like that. And it's kind of like, no, actually, that's that's a terrible way of interpreting this. It's that we don't facilitate their thinking in the way that goes on in um in Reggio. And actually, as a result of that, that stimulated us to think about this idea of a creative practice that we could be sharing with other people. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, we've solved it at all. We're struggling away thinking how to do it all the time. But we do, I suppose, have an approach and are aware of a way of thinking and exploring with children that does open up a space for their ideas. And so that led us to then think about how we could share that with others. So we have this approach with professional development that we call creativity as practice. Um, in, in, in a paper that I read of yours, you said, I argue that art in education projects are not means to create like-minded citizens, but rather a means to give people a voice by encountering what is strange, different and other, and using that to imagine an alternative future. Could you sort of expand on that a little bit? I thought that was really beautiful. Do you think that's me, Rob? <laughs> I wondered if that was Esther's paper about artscapers. Tell me, tell me again what I said. No, I did. As I mean, she was saying it, I thought, well, it's very, that's lovely. But it did sound like from Esther's paper about artscapers. Yeah. She said, I argue that art in education project is not a means to create like-minded citizens, but rather a means to give people a voice by encountering what is strange, different and other, and using that to imagine an alternative future. But that's coming back to that idea, isn't it? That it's about giving people, uh, it's about acknowledging the sort of individuality in the, in the system, isn't it? And saying that, you know, there's an opportunity there for people to have their own ideas, but still in a collective, still in a collaborative way. What we're always trying to do is, is build bridges between people and their ideas and find ways for people to work together on their ideas, but not ignore the fact that there's an individual there as well. And, that you need that collaborative opportunity and I think that's what we find has got so diminished in the schools that we're working in is that that collaborative approach is just being lost because they're very you know they're they've got they the curriculum is so dried out and so packed and so kind of busy that they're on this road map that doesn't give them an opportunity to to do that kind of collaborative working and that's I think is where, you know, some of these issues around these mental health problems that we're, that we're seeing coming through is that, you know, they're just not having the opportunity to, 
that they're not having the struggle and the joy of connecting with each other in enough ways. Can you? Uh, I, there's one behind you. I can see there. The the um those the fantastical maps that you create. Can you tell us a little bit about where that about what they are and where that idea came from and how it works? We talk about the fantastical as a way of sort of um, acknowledging that when you're in the when you're in the world you're both there in a real but also an imaginary way we are embodied kind of imaginations you know and what we're trying to do with the maps is make that visible that 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 there's both the real place around you but there's also this extraordinary place that you carry in your stories and your imaginations and in your creative ideas and in your in the history that's underneath you and the legends that may be you know, about the place you're in. So we've been kind of playing with that idea of a fantastical way into a space um, for uh, years now. I suppose the maps came out of that, came out of a desire to make that visible. But so that because what we're doing with the projects is very much embracing this idea of being on a journey together and that the process is what's important and we're discovering and exploring and, and finding things out together. But that maybe the maps are a way of drawing together those threads and and offering this idea of a fantastical as a sort of jumping off place for more fantastical imaginings. So the one that you can see behind me is from is the first one that we did, which was in a tiny little scruffy, scruffy little bit of woodland that a school realised that it had on its back fence that uh, had been fenced off because it was a problem for people were trespassing to get through it into another place so the council had um, fenced it off the school had forgotten that they quite liked using it 25 years ago or something and we were lucky enough to be able to start working with the school just as they just as they opened the space back up because what we were able to do is say no no don't tidy it you know let's make it let's do some tree work and make it safe but we don't have to put paths in we don't have to um though there were big ideas about building a bridge and building a bird hide and all sorts of kind of grooming kind of projects and actually what was great was we went in with the reception class and said no let's find our way in following the children's ideas following the children's leads and let's see what's in here through the children's eyes and then let's lead others to come in and follow and one of the people who came in as part of that work was the poet Jackie Kay. So she came and she very much said, well, I don't know that I'll write, Ruth. You know, I'm, you, you don't sort of don't expect me to write when I'm with the children. But she was curious because she had been uh, researching her own family history and her father was a wood. He was a tree um, scientist. So she was kind of curious to come and spend time in, in the woods with the young children. But actually, she found she couldn't stop writing. And the children wrote prolifically with her. So we've been able to publish that. Anyway, from that came the first fantastical map. And it's been a great way, I suppose, to frame an invitation to a school about how you why you might work with us, because it it, it sort of celebrates and draws together these layers that we discover through the process of working with the children, then with their families, then with the wider community. It's an awesome thing then because we give it to this brilliant artist called Elena, Elena Melville, and we give her all the work and we talk about what we've discovered with the children and what we've um, found out about a place. But then she sits and she puts the work 
everywhere in her own house and then she layers up these i mean they're digital so i think some one of the ones has got about 140 layers um and we've talked about wouldn't it be amazing to be able to animate the way those layers come together because actually of course you could relayer it in all sorts of ways and it's limitless it's limitless but we want to invite people to think about when you're somewhere you're you could potentially be open to all these extraordinary things that are going on around you and have, have, have adults ever done them without i mean they're, they're done with with kids but it's a tool presumably that you could use with any um, people of any age Totally, totally. So when you were talking about your milk factory, I was thinking about imagine being able to draw together some of those threads that some of that knowledge and history and story sharing. And, you know, you could make visible all sorts of ways of thinking about a place, but using that approach. Yeah, we love placing children as experts in the middle. We love their capacity to kind of navigate up for others away into a place because they are they are play experts and they are very unselfconscious about filtering what they don't bring that kind of baggage about judgment and anxiety that I, many many of us bring to places we've done quite a lot of work in Keppel's Yard Gallery here in Cambridge and in Wising Arts Centre where we invited children to lead their families as sort of playful experts as a way into the contemporary art that they might be visiting together which is notoriously a thing that can trigger a huge amount of anxiety and kind of judgment and uh, kind of dismissive or you know not understanding it but actually if you come at it through a kind of more playful open way of thinking about it then you can find your own responses to that and, and why does it matter that that kids connect to the place around them you know like it feels like that work is such a beautiful way of really seeing the world closest to you in a much deeper kind of a way Whereas in school, we go go to school, go home. You know, we we often have no sense of what's going on around us in terms of the wild spaces and the natural spaces. Why is, 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 is that connection so important? Because if you know the place that you're a part of, you're going to care about it. And if you're going to and if you care about it, you're going to look after it. And then you're going to notice. And, you know, I mean, Rob talks about Rob McFarlane talks about this a lot in the work that he's been doing, that. If we don't know the places we're in, then we're not going to look after them. And that's self-evident in what's going on around the world, isn't it? That lack of care and that lack of noticing. So I think, you, 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 you know, that emotional connection is what's going to enable us to start better looking after our, our world and each other. You know, I think this 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 care is, you know, what what we're aware of in the work is that I think we see children care for themselves better because they have a greater sense of agency and authority about their own ideas but they care for each other and then that that ripples out so that you know it it, it 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 connects everything up in a better way if you had been elected as as the prime minister at the last election and you would run on a platform of make britain imaginative again recognizing that we needed a, a massive boost in our imaginative capacity, whether it be in work or in university or in home life or whatever, I wonder what you might do in your first hundred days uh, at number at number ten. Oh well, I would start with education, and I would start with putting space back into education for ideas and that growing of ideas and imagination. And I think, you know, I think 
we've got a model that I was only talking about with Reggio about having these creative lab spaces at the heart of education institutions. And I don't think I think education has to be open to everyone. We are live. We need that lifelong learning approaches absolutely right so though we could have an atelier space in our local libraries you know i work a lot with our local library i'm passionate about them as really important spaces for people to come in and share ideas and you know that that aren't connected to any church or faith they're just there in the heart of communities and you could have a tell you could have lab spaces in libraries so that everybody could access them to facilitate a way of thinking that just allows people to explore and bring their own ideas and their own thoughts and work together with other people. So I would probably invest in an atelier space for every community. If people are reading this and they have kids or they're, they're a teacher with kids and they're thinking, I'm, in, I'm inspired, I'm going to take these kids out, we're going to go out into the woods, would you have any tips for them, any, any, any suggestions for how to really connect those kids to that place? Yes, I think it's all, you know, I think, I think placing your child as the leader of that experience. So responding to their, you know, it's, we talk about slowliness, which I've used so much now. I've forgotten it's not a word, but <laughs> it is, it's a beauty, it's a brilliant word. And it really encapsulates that idea that actually if you slow down, you know, there's, that brings in space in all sorts of metaphorical and real ways to, to, give you a chance to notice so i would invite people with their own children to ask the children to think about where they where an adventure could be had and then to go slowly to embrace this idea of slowliness with them and and don't don't go with digital you know go go simply take paper and pencil but you don't need what we find continually with our work is that actually if you strip things away the, the powerful imaginations that you you have are more than enough and the materials that are around you when you're outdoors are more than enough you don't need to go with um complicated equipment or you know you need to be warm and you need to be comfortable but you know go slowly and let children lead you and you mentioned you, you mentioned uh, digital technologies you know well, there's a lot of research i've been doing about the impact that those things are having on kind of attention spans and imagination and ability to concentrate and uh and and uh, you know when you i think you're right it's like actually if we go out into nature and we're looking at everything through through a little screen it puts like sort of uh someone wrote described as sort of prophylactic layers between us and what we're and you know and, and what we're trying to see does does that in terms of creating fantastical maps or in terms of uh, uh, invoking curiosity and imagination, do those technologies have any role to play, or is most of your work based around put that to one side, and we're going to take you on a journey with something else? Could you create a fant- fantastical map if everybody had iPads wandering around in the woods? I mean, you could. You could, and, and gosh, the equipment is is. I'm not at all saying it's not valuable or useful, but I think the hands on touching and feeling the kind of awakening of your senses by getting rid of that's as you, I I like that idea as a, as a layer and it's a bloody ridiculously skillful layer because no sooner do you pick it up than you see you've got a WhatsApp and your Facebook messenger and you know, you're, 
you're immediately distracted from what you're trying to do. So I think I think it absolutely has its place, but I think it comes at the end of a process or as part of a process. But I think that hands on touch and sensory work is paramount first. I was reading some work that um, I think they're called clay time. They they do a lot of work with clay with young children. Yeah, and they were they were talking about this research that um now she's called Shirley she's in um Heath, Bryson Heath, something like that. And she was taught she was um that she was reporting on work that she had been doing with the medical um profession in America who were talking about the lack of diagnostic skills that they're seeing coming through in young people because of their their lack of experience of manipulating and using materials so that their, their ability to use their hands as part of the diagnostic work. And she was talking about, you know, we have 20 times more receptors coming back from our fingers through our touch than is going out. So they're these, they're these incredible kind of fact finding things. But if we're using them on screens, we're just diminishing the opportunity to, to bring back that information into our brains all the time. Um, I thought that was really striking, actually. How, how do you see kids' imaginations change as they grow up? If you're working with kids from from little going upwards, how how does it change as they as they grow? I think sadly it changes because layered on top of it comes I can't I can't. It becomes a kind of message of I'm not. I shouldn't. I can't. There's a sort of anxiety around. You know, you watch children mark making freely who haven't sort of had a you know who who feel very powerful around their own expressive powers with drawing and they are for so free and yet that so quickly becomes that so quickly is dried out and becomes something that they don't do so i think i think what we see is a lack of just a huge lack of confidence about their capacity and entitlements to express themselves in those ways and that is that's not just that's not just about mark making that's about physical expressiveness or movement or you know it's in all those spheres and how often do we work with adults who say oh I you know I was told by so and so I must you know I'm no artist or you should never sing or you should never do this it's like you know we pick up those messages worry incredibly quickly and then lay them down and think well I won't then you know a lot of your work it seems is about is about creating creating spaces in which kids can be imaginative so so you know often in in a way that 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 would coming from a school setting where that's not their everyday experience so you're having to create like the the vessel within which the, the the space within which their imaginations can flourish what would you if you were to identify the the kind of ingredients for creating a space like that what would be the 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 elements of holding creating a space that you can hold in which people feel confident that they can that they can let their imaginations uh, run well there's a sort of physical attention there's a sort of attention to the actual physicality of it so that would be almost nothing in it you know you would strip it out of what i find overwhelming about classrooms when i go into them is the noise that's all over the walls of 
phonics and alphabets and spelling and messages and oh kind of the rules and you know blah 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 blah. and it's like it's you're bombarded so what we often do when we start is we literally physically cover things over i mean in a respectful way but we find spaces and that's why the outdoors is such an enabling space because it's not you know and we go to the outdoor we go to as unkempt if you like a space as possible i mean what over the years that one of the sadnesses has been some of the spaces that we've worked in and helped families come to and then built up a reputation as being a space to visit and then actually what can happen is through good intentions to therefore then make that space available for parties or family well, I don't know, is it gets tidied up and it ends up almost, you know, people have hoovered the paths and they put edges along and, you know, it gets and all the nettles get taken out. And, you know, actually, so I suppose as, as a really as a really careful attention to the physical qualities of the space, which is about making sure there is space for ideas. Um, I think there's that quality of time that's really, really important about slowing things down. I think we think really carefully about the sort of provocations or the invitations so that that's about coming alongside the interests of the people we're working with. And that doesn't have to be the children, but that's about respectfully starting with a process of listening to what they're interested in, listening to what they're noticing and bringing in invitations and provocations that respond to those interests so that, you know, we'll talk about children leading. And that doesn't mean that we don't do anything. That means that we're trying to listen to what they are interested in and come alongside them with those interests. I've spoken to quite a few teachers, which has been quite interesting about, you know, their experience of being within mainstream education and trying to bring imagine, trying to weave imagination into what they do. And it just sounds absolutely heartbreaking from a lot of the people that I've spoken to about how that is how can we best support them do you think to to give our to to, to weave imagination into what they do well on a policy level we could yeah strip out the assessment process you know we could change the assessment kind of criteria i mean there's a tiny tiny little chink just come in with the new ofsted framework that was announced a couple of weeks ago which is to, what are the wording that's been used around this Ofsted framework? They're replacing this idea of outcomes with um, words that talk about the quality of the education, the behaviour and the attributes of the students, personal development. So there's, I think, from what I understand from people who follow that, there's, you know, that there's a little bit of a chink in there. It's a very slow moving kind of, it's going to take a long time for that message to come through. So I suppose we best support them by taking the pressure off them to measure everything that they do with children so that they have a space. And we remind them that they are imaginative people themselves. I think what when I, when I see, you know, I talk to colleagues who work in teacher, teacher training and, you know, the lack of space that's given in now in the teacher training process for them to think about their own development as imaginative people. That, you know, they're increasingly trained as technicians and that's not going to give you an opportunity to think about yourself in your imaginative capacities. So there's a big role in leadership about trust, about restoring that sense of trusting them to do, to, to do, to do that work and giving them the space to build those relationships with their children. 
but I, I don't feel very positive about it, Rob. No, I was. I spoke to a friend of mine who's who did the teacher training, <coughs> and she was uh, put on a placement in a school in South London, and she was like, "There's not even any invitation for people to use their brain, never mind the imagination. It's all such kind of rote learning. You know, we're studying uh, uh, whatever um, whatever book it is in English. You know, okay, I'm going to give you. I'm just going. We're going to go through, and you, and you underline this bit, underline this bit, underline this bit. They're going to ask you for this bit. It's all like teach to the test. You know." She was she was heartbroken by the whole thing, I think. And no wonder that we're seeing the kind of um, problems with teacher retention and teacher recruitment that we are, because you it's, you've got to go you've got to you, you know you go into it because you're passionate about developing young people, but you know if actually all you're doing is frankly bullying them along a kind of set of systems that they're not really very interested in how utterly utterly draining and depressing and and really really upsetting mm. when you look around and you think you know where are the kind of outposts in the education universe or whatever in the education world the outposts that are doing the most to nurture and foster and cultivate imagination where are the places that that come to mind i haven't been to i haven't seen the the new zealand system to to sort of nurture that that but i know that colleagues who have spent quite a lot of time visiting some of the new zealand systems where they talk about the sort of thinking about learning not as a ladder that you're clambering up that's you know one directional and you know the rungs are all neatly sort of stacked above but they think about spirals and they think about that kind of much more fluid open way of of following and learning so I suppose I'd probably go and look at some of the New Zealand systems my sister was trained as a teacher in New Zealand and then came back and taught here and um I think she would rather have stayed in New Zealand if she was going to. She's not a teacher anymore. Well, she's not in the teaching anymore.